Okay, so once again, I'd like to welcome you back to the Thursday evening session of our Bible Basics webinar. We're really glad to have you with us. And I'm excited this evening to have with me here in person, uh, Jacob Robinson. And Jacob is going to lead us through the Finding Our Way section. Uh, one of the exciting things for me in these webinars is the number of different Bible students that we've had join us for the presentations. And all the presenters so far have been members of our church here in Brantford, students of the Bible, both young and old. And we're glad to have Jacob with us tonight. And he's going to take us through a study of parables. And we'll look at why Jesus taught in parables and a consideration of some of the parables that Jesus taught. And then I'll be back with you in about 15 or 20 minutes to lead you through a section on an important Bible theme, a theme following what we looked at last week about uh, baptism, we're going to look at the Spirit, and specifically the Spirit of God, and the various ways in which the Spirit is referred to in the Bible. So without further delay, I'll turn the webinar over to our presenter, and we'll ask Jake to take it away. We are going to be doing the Finding Your Way section tonight together. And what we're going to consider is the topic of parables, and specifically why Jesus spoke in parables. And you might think, well, why did he? It seems like a very confusing way to get a point across. Why couldn't you just tell someone what you wanted them to hear, what principles you wanted them to learn? And we're going to see why it was a very effective way of doing this in a parable format. And the first thing we need to understand is what a parable is in the first place. So I looked it up in a couple of different resources and from the Strong's, we get that a parable is a similitude, i.e. it's a symbol, a fictitious narrative of common life conveying a moral, a figure, or a proverb. <clears throat> In the Enhanced Strong's Lexicon, I summarized what it said there, and it says, an example by which a doctrine or a precept is illustrated. It's a fictitious narrative, but it's agreeable to the laws of human life, by which the duties of men or the things of God, particularly of God's kingdom, are figuratively portrayed. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And the only truth that is essential to a parable is the truth of the moral or the doctrine that is conveyed by it. So to summarize all these definitions, a parable is a fictional, fictitious story or a fictitious situation, but it's one that has a moral or a doctrinal lesson hidden within it. Certain parts of the parable are going to be representative of something else. There are going to be symbols of something else. Why did Jesus speak in parables? As we mentioned earlier, why make people have to search for the meaning? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in Matthew 13, verses 11 to 14, after his disciples ask this very same question earlier in verse 10. His explanation, however, as we'll see here, is a little bit cryptic to understand. It says, He answered and said to them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given, them being the Pharisees. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I them, to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, 
and shall not perceive. So the key words in this explanation lie in verses 13 and in verse 14. These words are understand and perceive. So understand from the Strong's means to put together, i.e. mentally to comprehend. And perceive also from Strong's means to see by implication to know, to be aware, consider, and have knowledge. So what does Jesus' explanation mean? Well, it means that the Pharisees who he's speaking about, and perhaps even us at first when we come to parables, see and hear the parable, the story, but we don't understand it. It's almost like an inside joke, but for this one, we can be let in on the answer. That's why parables were spoken, so that those who really wanted to understand could, if they worked for the understanding. And a couple of verses in scripture show us how we can do this. In Proverbs 25, verse 2, I've summarized that God has concealed in his word the Bible, and effort is required by us to search out what he has concealed. John 5, verse 39 to 44, it, um, it says there that we need to search the scriptures because they're given by God and they are an honor that is given to us. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 25, we need to search and seek for wisdom. What's wisdom? It's application that is based off of understanding. It's applying understanding in our lives. So by speaking in parables, we're required to search for wisdom and for understanding. It's going to take effort to do. It's going to take time. But when we search, we understand. And then we can use this understanding to live by. Not only that, but the principle becomes so much more meaningful and memorable when it's um, couched in this parable, in this story format. So let's quickly look at an example of how this is true. With the first parable that is ever recorded of Jesus in Matthew 13, and that is the parable of the sower. I'm just going to read that quickly here for you. Matthew 13, verses 3 to 9 says, And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground, and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So what is this parable saying? Jesus will give us an explanation later on in the chapter, verses 18 to 23. And we can use this to begin. We're not going to read it now, but we're going to take what he says and apply it to each of the sections we look at. We've been given the knowledge of this parable, but our job, our honor from God, is to search out the matter for understanding. Because if we diligently look, the message becomes clearer. And one important thing to understand before we start is that the seed is sown in the heart. That's what it says in verse 19. So the different types of grounds are different types of hearts. All right, so the first type of ground is the wayside. Jesus says this ground is people on whom the word or the seed of God has fallen, but they don't understand. Well, why don't they understand? What's a wayside like? Strong, Strong's calls it a road or a highway. 
So people are walking on it all day. These days, people to be driving on a road or highway all day. This ground is hard and unyielding. A seed would just lie on its surface until it's removed. In the parable, the seed is removed by birds. This ground is those whose hearts refuse to change, despite the wonders that God has shown them in his scripture. An example um, in scripture of this type of heart is Pharaoh. And that's from all those verses there in blue. And it says there nine times that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And I'm just going to read one of them for you. Exodus 8 verse 32 says, And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. So it tells us that Pharaoh hardens his heart. He's like this wayside. And he does that, as I've said, nine times. <clears throat> and the Bible gives us some advice on what we can do to prevent this. We're told that we're not supposed to harden our hearts. We're not to harden them to the voice and the word of God. We're supposed to be open and receptive to his word, willing to change. So the next type of ground is the stony ground. Jesus says this ground is people who hear the word or the seed of God and they receive it. But when trials and persecutions come, they turn away from it. From Strong's, the word stony actually means a mass of rock. So it's not just little pebbles like on a driveway or on the side of the road. It is a big chunk of rock and it has a thin layer of soil on it. But rather than deep soil where roots can grow and expand and create a root system, it's a large mass of rock that lies beneath. And this stops the growth of the root system. This ground is those who appear righteous, but beneath their exterior character, there's no root of, of the word of God. If they're persecuted or confronted by people who mock the word, this person is going to deny that it was planted in them and their roots are going to wither. Exodus 16 verse 30 is an example of this in the Bible. And it says, Ezekiel, sorry, how weak is thine heart, saith the Lord Yahweh, seeing thou doest all these things. <clears throat> this is speaking of Israel. And despite being God's chosen people, called out from the nations around them, Israel denies God because of their weak heart, as it says in that verse there. They rejected God through their sins, and this is because of the weak, stony heart they had. If he, or Colossians 2, verse 6 to 7 says, We are told to have Christ in our hearts, so that he, we may be rooted in him, and built up in him, established in faith. So the third type of ground we're going to look at is the thorny ground. Jesus says this ground is people who hear the word of God, or the seed of God, and they receive it but they're choked off from the word by thorns of life, specifically the cares, riches, and the temptations that it has to offer. This ground is those who are drawn away from the world by the temptations and the vain pleasures that this life has to offer, their vain, its vain cares. An example of this in the Bible is with Achan in Joshua 7, verse 1 and 21. I'll just read those here. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. 
And then this is Aiken speaking later on in the chapter, and it says, When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Achan coveted riches and the treasures from the evil city of Jericho. And they were these treasures were forbidden um, to be taken, and that's from Joshua 6. God forbids them to take anything from this city. But Achan's heart leads him away from God's command, and he ultimately chokes his own life because he seeks after these things. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21 tells us to forget earthly treasures, to look to heavenly treasures and possessions, because our heart is where our treasure is. So we're supposed to look to these eternal treasures in heaven. And the last type of ground we're going to look at is the good ground. Jesus tells us that this ground is people who hear the word or the seed of God, and they also understand it. They bring forth fruit. Fruit in the Bible represents action, working on the understanding you've gained. Luke 3 verse 8 says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And Colossians 1 verse 10 says, That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So fruit represents works here. This ground is those who take in the word and they search it, even as parables must be searched, like we're doing now, to gain an understanding so they can apply it in their lives. Once we've come to this understanding, it can be applied to our lives and we can live by it and bring forth good fruits that stem from this understanding just as fruit stems from a rooted plant. In scripture, Acts 13, verse 21 to 22 says, and afterward they desired a king. This is recounting the history of Israel. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. God says of David that he was a man after his heart. He allowed the seed to penetrate his heart and to root there, to remove the thorns of this life. First Kings 14 verse 8 says that David did that only which was right in mine, which is God's eyes. His heart was totally conformed to God's and his works reflected this. In Ephesians 3, verse 17 to 19, we are told to have Christ in our hearts, one who also submitted his heart to God perfectly, and we are to be rooted in Christ's love, the love that God showed for us in sending Christ to this earth to be sacrificed. And the last question we want to see here is, can we change our heart's type? You know, we may be unchangeable at now anyways, or we may have um, struggles with the things of this life. We may have a weak heart, but the answer is yes, we can change our heart's type. Hardened soil can be watered with God's word. 
This spiritual water that satisfies hardens hardened hearts. Deuteronomy 32 verse 2 says that my doctrine shall drop as the rain. That's God's doctrine. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. God's word is the water that can soften our hearts. Rocks can be removed by having strength and courage to stand up for God's word. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Don't be afraid of those who are persecuting you or trying to mock you for what you believe. If we have courage, we can take these rocks out and we can have stronger hearts with a root system. Thorns can be uprooted with the, word, with the sword of God, his word, the Bible, to fight temptations and treasures of this life. In Ephesians 6, verse 13 and verse 17, it says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, to drive out the pleasures that this life has to offer, but will ultimately choke us away. Hearts are naturally deceitful and wicked, which it says in Jeremiah 17 here, where it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God does look into hearts. He's going to give a reward or a curse according to the fruits that we produce from our heart. Hearts may be naturally hard. They may be naturally weak or tricked, but they can be changed and nurtured with an, an understanding of parables, an understanding of the Bible. Because the Bible is full of parables. They're not just something that Jesus spoke in. It's all throughout the Bible that they crop up now and again. And if we have an understanding of them, then we can apply the understanding. Parables are valuable teachings. We can learn so much from them. We definitely didn't find out all there was to learn from our parable this evening. And that's something that makes them so helpful. They can be come back to again and again, searched again and again, and we can find new things over and over. And they're also memorable. You can remember the lessons much easier when you think of the story. When you're driving down the road and you see a wheat field, you can remember this parable and you can remember the principles it teaches. We are honored to search out what God has hidden in his word, the Bible. And so I'm just going to hand it over to Dan now, and he's going to speak on the second topic of this evening, key themes from the Bible. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jake, for your thoughts this evening. And uh, the parables are certainly one of my favorite parts of the scripture. And I think Jacob brought out a very good point there of how the Bible is full of parables. Well, we're going to turn our attention just for a moment to key Bible themes. And uh, on the screen here, I have an introductory verse. And you'll notice that I didn't have to go too far into the Bible to find this week's theme. We're looking at the spirit of God. And in Genesis chapter one, the Bible introduces us 
to this theme in such a beautiful way. Look what it says in Genesis chapter one. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. What a beautiful way that we're introduced to the creation of the world. At one point in time, termed the beginning, the heavens and the earth were there, but the earth was not like we know it today. You know, the planet existed, but not with the order and structure that we marvel at as we look out our windows or, or walk through the fields today. The planet was dark. There was no light. It was void or, or empty. It was covered in water. And what follows in the rest of Genesis chapter one is a description of creation, the separation of light from darkness, the appearance of land, the growth of vegetation and life. And how did all that occur? Well, we're told that it was by the spirit of God. The spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And, and we'll look at the meaning of that word in, in just a moment, but think about what you probably already know from Genesis. How was the earth created? Well, if you remember, God spoke and things were created. For example, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so creation was because God spoke and it happened. And that was the spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters of the earth at the time of creation. What incredible power that we're told about. And I think of this verse from Psalm 104, which really describes the same event. It says, thou sendeth forth thy spirit, they are created, thou renewest the face of the earth. God filled the earth with creation. And it involved the change of an empty planet into one that was full of life, that was renewed. And how did that happen? Well, God sent forth his spirit. And the scientist in me would, would just love to know so much more about how that happened. But uh, we're given what we're given by God that he knows that we need to understand. But the, the purpose we come to this verse tonight is to introduce the concept of God's spirit. I don't know about you, but when you think about creation and God's spirit, what comes to mind is the power of God. How powerful is God that he can speak and something happens? And in essence, that's really the definition of the spirit of God right here in Genesis chapter one. The spirit of God is his power. Now, there's a, a tool you want to know about if you're studying the Bible, and it's called parallelism. And over and over again in the Bible, we find the same thing said twice. The same concept is expressed in two different sets of words. I suppose it's, it's something that we all do, but it's certainly prevalent in the Bible. And we come to this very first in the New Testament. It's from Luke chapter one. It's the beginning of the gospel of Christ. And uh, here the angel Gabriel is speaking with Mary, who's just been told that she's going to have a son. And she's, of course, trying to understand how that's going to happen. And so we're told in verse 35, the angel Gabriel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And so this, the surface of these meaning of these verses, we know well, Jesus was going to be the Son of God and the Son of Mary. Mary would become pregnant, not by normal means, but by the, by the Holy Spirit. 
But for our purposes, we have this wonderful example of parallelism. So there's the repetition of these two phrases in, in the same idea in two different phrases. And you can see that there's three ideas that are repeated. The, the spirit is the same as, as power. And the word holy means something that's separate. In other words, this is not just any power, but it's the power of, of God. And so you can see the parallelism there that holy refers to the fact that this is the power of, of the highest or of God, the strongest, most powerful power that exists. And again, you can see the third example of parallelism here that when the power came upon Mary, it's the same as, as overshadowing her. But really what this takes us to is that the definition of the Holy Spirit is essentially God's power. And how else could Mary give birth to, to Jesus? His birth would be a miracle. It was by the power of God. And that same power that performed the miracle of Jesus' birth was the power that created the earth that we looked at in Genesis chapter 1. And in fact, it's the same power that gives us life. Now, this, this verse isn't going to be perfectly clear until you stop and think about it and connect it with Genesis. But these are the words in, in the book of Job. And there's one of Job's friends who incidentally is talking about the ultimate power of God. And this is what Elihu says in Job 34. If he, which is God, set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together and man shall turn again unto dust. And so Elihu here presents the idea of a, of a man. And he says, if God took away his spirit, then the man would die and return to the dust. And we have to ask ourselves, well, whose spirit is taken away? Is it the man's spirit or is it God's spirit? And when you read the verse, you see that it's, it's God's spirit. God takes the spirit back to himself. And so in other words, this verse tells us that we are alive only because God has put within us his spirit. That's the power of God working in our lives by the very fact that we are just alive. Now, coincidentally, we have here some parallelism that the spirit is the same thing as God's breath. And so we breathe and are alive because of God's power. And if we were just to do a, a quick short little Hebrew lesson here and, and think about the word spirit in Hebrew, we'd learn that it is the word ruach and it means wind or a breath. So the spirit is really God's breath. And you think of the movement of air. Now, Jesus, when he spoke to Nicodemus about God's spirit, he compared it to the wind. And you think of the wind, how the wind itself is invisible, but we see its effects. You don't really see the wind, but you see what it does. So when you see leaves blowing, you know that that's the wind. Or when you see an umbrella being turned inside out, it's the power of the wind that does that. Or a, a bending palm tree in a hurricane. And so it is with the Spirit of God. We don't physically see the Spirit of God, but we see all the effects around us of his power. And if you go back to the words of Elihu here on the screen, Elihu says that if God was to take away his breath from us, we would die. And if you think back to creation, and when man was formed, we have exactly the opposite. We have God creating a man out of dust and breathing into that being the breath of life. That's what makes us alive. So 
As we consider the Spirit of God, what, what have we learned? Well, we learned that God's Spirit is his power, and by that power, he's accomplished many great things. He's created the world, he created Jesus, he created you and I. But there's something really fascinating I find about God's Spirit. As you read through the Bible, you learn that, that God has chosen at times to share his Spirit or his power with others. I think I have time to share with you three of my favorite examples of God sharing his spirit. The first comes from the life of Samson. This is one of the great Sunday school stories. Uh, Samson's a man with, remember, with long hair, who grew his hair long, and when he had long hair, he had strength, immense strength. It was part of being a Nazarite, which was a vow that men could make in the days of, of Israel. And look at this verse in Judges 14. It says, then Samson went down and behold, a young lion roared against him and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and he rent him in, he rent him as he would have rent a kid and he had nothing in his hand. So here's Samson walking down the road, going to visit the Philistines and out of the bush comes a lion. And what would Samson do? He has nothing in his hands, no weapon, nothing to defend himself against this roaring lion. And so with his bare hands, he takes a lion and rends him in, in two. And can you imagine doing that? Uh, how would that be possible? Well, it was the spirit of God. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. It was God's power that allowed Samson to do that, to do the impossible. And, you know, there's lots of examples of this in the Old Testament. You know, when they were building the tabernacle in the wilderness, they needed men who were capable of, of forming the altar out of gold or building the, the curtains of the tabernacle. And no one in the nation had those skills. They were used to making the bricks in Egypt. But God specifically gave his power or special skills to two men to work with the gold and the silver and the embroidery. But you know what you may not realize is that this same process explains the miracles that Jesus himself was able to perform. This verse is from Acts chapter, chapter 10, and it's a summary of the life of Jesus. It says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were possessed. So you ever thought where Jesus got the power to perform the miracles in giving sight to the blind like is portrayed in the picture here on the screen? Well, God shared his power with Jesus. And with this power, Jesus went about and used it for doing good things, for healing those that were oppressed. And you'll notice the parallelism here again. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. So the Holy Spirit equals the power. And if you were to look up that verse in John 3, which I don't have on the screen, you'd learn that there was something different about the power that Jesus received. It was different than, say, the power that Samson received. We're told that that Jesus was given an unlimited amount of power. He was given the power of God without measure. Well, the final example that I want to share with you is probably the most famous example of God sharing his spirit with men. And it's in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. You'll probably remember when the, when the tongues of fire came down upon the disciples who were then given the power to speak in different languages and to heal those that were sick. And before Acts chapter 2, Jesus had explained to the disciples that they would receive this power. He says, you shall receive power after the Holy 
Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So again, you can see what the Holy Spirit is all about. It's about strength and, and power and the ability to do things that we couldn't do naturally. And uh, they were to use that power to preach the gospel all over the Roman world. And hence the ability to preach in different languages. The Roman world was vast and diverse. There was people of all different languages. And there was no time for these men to learn the languages that would be necessary. And they were given the power to heal so that they could convince men that the message that they had was from God. Well, I, I must admit to you that I think we, we just have time tonight to scratch the surface of this theme. I would reckon that the, the Spirit of God might be one of the largest themes in the Bible. But I don't think it would be right to finish this evening without considering one of the most significant ways in which the Spirit of God can work in our lives today. Because you see, God doesn't just share his spirit with men in the Old Testament or with the apostles in the, in the first century or with his son, but God shares his power with us. As we've seen already, he shares his power in giving us the We're alive by the power of God. If God took away his spirit, we would return to the dust. But there's another way in which the power of God can work in our lives. And it's the book that we hold in our hands and study each week. Look what it says here in John chapter 6. And it's the words of Jesus that are described as spirit. Jesus says to his disciples, who he's speaking with, um, it, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And I don't know if you can see the echo back there to creation in Genesis chapter chapter one or in, and chapter two in the creation of man. Remember, what was man made of? He was made of dust and the breath of life that comes from God. And the dust is the natural element. It comes from the ground. It's the flesh. And the spirit is that breath of life that comes from God. And, and so when it comes to live our life, Jesus was telling the disciples, we, we can either live according to the, the ways of the earth or we can live according to the ways of God. And Jesus says that the ways of the flesh have no profit, but the ways of God give life. That, that word quickeneth there is an old English way of saying that they, they give life. But I think it's the final part of this verse that's so powerful. Where do those words that give life come from? Well, Jesus says they're the words that he speaks. They're the words that give life. They are spirit and they are life. And when you start to understand this broader picture, you actually come to understand that it's the entire Bible that is the spirit that can give us life. Jacob took us to this verse here in uh, Ephesians chapter 16. In Ephesians chapter 16, Paul is painting a picture of a spiritual warrior. And there's a man with armor representing things like truth and righteousness and faith and prayer. But this warrior, this spiritual warrior, has a sword. And that sword is, is the word of God. And Jacob said we could use that sword to dig out the, the thorns that are in the ground. But what our point is, is that this is the, the sword of the spirit. It's the power of God to change our lives. And our final verse is going to come from a, a well-known verse in, in 2 Timothy. 
but before we do that, just a, a real quick Greek lesson. So all this time that we're talking about the word spirit, when we did in the Old Testament, it, it meant breath. Well, in the New Testament, it's the word pneuma, which we might rec recognize from various English words, but it means a current of air, a breath, or a breeze. It's just like the Old Testament. It's the breath of, of God. And you might recognize this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And inspiration, if you think about what that means, even in English, it's referring to our breath. We inspire air. And what it means specifically is that the word of God was divinely breathed by God. And the verse in Timothy goes on to say that the word of God is powerful. It says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The spirit of God is within the scriptures and it has the power to change our life. Just like the word of God was able to create the universe and create the world and the earth on which we live. Just like the spirit of God was able to bring about the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. And God has chosen at times past to share his power with, with others so that they could accomplish something that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Like Samson to tear apart a lion or the disciples to preach the gospel message. Well, God is using that same spirit to work in our lives today. And he's doing that by means of his word. And it's our prayer, friends, that, that you'll allow God to work in your life through the regular and consistent reading of, of this book, this book that is God-breathed, that's inspired and profitable for doctrine and reproof and instruction in the ways of righteousness. What a marvelous topic. And, and like I say, I think we've only scratched the surface tonight of the theme of the spirit. But we hope that introduction will inspire you to look into other parts of the scripture as well. Well, I'll just give you your reminder that uh, next week is our special Bible Basics webinar on Bible prophecy. We've been watching very uh, closely and excitedly the events that are taking place in the Middle East. And we want to share with you next week how the events that are taking place in the Abraham Accords and the move towards peace were something that was prophesied in the Bible and is one of the signs that we as Christadelphians are looking for as we await the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So we invite you to join us next week, invite your friends, have them come out to this uh, special episode of the Bible Basics webinar. Mm -hmm.